Good morning, First Baptist Church of Gray Gables. I hope you're all having a wonderful, wonderful week. Um, if you're tuning into this service, we want you to know that we miss you on Sunday morning. Um, we so desperately long to connect with you and hope you're doing well uh, in the midst of this difficult time that we're having. However, I want to point you towards the Word of God. As we saw last week, the most powerful force in all the universe is the Word of God, working through the Spirit of God. And redirect your attention to 1 Thessalonians chapter uh, 1. Uh, we're going to be covering the second half of verse 5, and then we're going to skip over and really cover the first 12 verses of chapter 2. So if you are a little bit OCD like me, this is probably going to drive you crazy, but that's okay. Sometimes we need that, okay? Let's read together uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5b, the second half, where we left off last week, and then we're going to skip over to chapter 2 and read verses 1 through 12. I hope you have your Bibles out and open and you're reading along with me. Here's what the precious and inerrant and fallible word of God says. As you know, Thessalonians, what kind of men we were among you for your sake. That's the second half of verse 5. Let's skip over to chapter 2, verse 1 now. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil, for laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, we preach to you the gospel of God. Verse 10, you are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. First Baptist Church of Gray Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's go to Lord and thank him for his word. Gracious Father, Lord, we indeed thank you for your word, which we have just read. Uh, Father, we confess together our desperate need uh, to be addressed by your word this morning. Uh, Father, we profess together that your word is the most powerful force in all the universe. So, Father, by it we know that you convict, that you convert, and that you grant the grace of perseverance to your people. So, Father, would you visit us now with that grace that you work through uh, your word? Would you send the Holy Spirit among us to do what the Holy Spirit does? And impressing that word upon our hearts, would you 
Please guard us against any opinions or imaginations of man that your people might be transformed more and more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. All right. Now I'm going to start off this morning with a confession, probably a confession many of you know, and I'm not ashamed to say it. Uh, I like musicals. I do. Okay, uh, I, I grew up on them. Uh, uh, my mom used to play them all the time in the house. My grandfather in Wisconsin uh, loved them as well. Thankfully, I was spared the embarrassment of really being in many musicals. I cannot say the same for my brother. Uh, but uh, one of my favorite musicals of all time is The Music Man. Um, in The Music Man, if you're familiar with that musical, a huckster, a scam artist, uh, rolls into town selling band equipment. And he's promising the town folk that he's going to teach all the kids in town how to play all the band equipment. Now, uh, if you've seen the, the music man at all, you realize that this person has not a lick of an idea of how to play any instruments whatsoever. Uh, no ability to f actually follow through on that which he promised. His motives were driven by greed. His methods were deceptive. They were flattering. He had a silver tongue. And his lifestyle was not really that of a model upright citizen. His motives, methods, and manner of life were not in keeping with the promises of a good band instructor who was going to bring reformation to this small town that had been plagued with the immoral behavior brought along by the game of pool. So in our text today, uh, we actually have a similar account in its contrast. Okay, Paul in this text, he is calling the Thessalonians to testify to his pure motives, to his honest methods, and to his righteous manner of life. Uh, Paul here is calling the Thessalonians to testify to his pure motives, his honest methods, and his righteous manner of life. And he's showing that his uh, motives, methods, and manner were in keeping with the gospel message that he proclaimed. And so in verse 5 of chapter 1, the second half, we hear Paul saying, can I get a witness? Can, can somebody testify to this? Look what he says at the end of verse 5. As you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And then he picks up in chapter 2 verse 1 with the same question. Can I please get a witness to this? Verse 1 he says, for you Thessalonians, you yourselves know brethren that our coming to you was not in vain. Paul turns from the power of the gospel word in verse 5a to the motives, methods, and manner of life uh, of the gospel messengers in verse 5b. Uh, he tells them that his motives, his methods, and his manner matched his message. They were congruent. They know that Paul and his companions did not come with vain or empty motives as we see in verse 1. And then in verses 2 through 12, Paul is going to offer four lines of evidence that witness to the purity of his motives, the integrity or honesty of his methods, and the righteousness of his manner. 
So that's really going to be our outline, these four evidences that Paul gives that witness to the purity of his motives, the honesty of his methods, and the righteousness of his manner. Let's look at these each in turn. The first line of evidence Paul provides for his gospel character and his gospel message is the circumstance of his arrival. The circumstance of his arrival. We read this uh, in verse number two. Read along with me with your Bibles. Paul says, But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. Paul and Silas had suffered at Philippi. And we don't have to guess the circumstances that were surrounding their suffering because we read about them in the book of Acts chapter 16. Luke records uh, the event of Paul and Silas being dragged before the magistrates because Paul had exercised a demon out of the young slave girl who made quite a profit for her owners. And so they became enraged, they became infuriated, and they dragged Paul and Silas before the magistrates and demanded that they pay for their good deed. So in a moment, completely void of jurisprudence, the magistrates have Paul and Silas stripped, publicly beaten, and thrown into jail. There was no trial. There was no attempt to discern who Paul and Silas were, uh, what they had or had not done. And so Paul and and Silas, after that, arrive in Thessalonica with flesh, uh, with, with, with fresh wounds, um, with blood still dripping and scandal nipping at their heels. So suffice to say, Paul and Silas had a reputation, a bad reputation at that. And they arrive in Thessalonica and they had the boldness to declare the gospel of God. Despite their suffering, uh, despite their shameful treatment in Philippi, Paul and Silas stroll up into Thessalonica, they head to the synagogue and they continue to do what they were doing when they were in Philippi, proclaiming the gospel of God. In one sense, their movement from Uh, Philippi to Thessalonica was a bit like going from the fire into the frying pan. And I I know I said that backwards, but in Thessalonica, they weren't beaten and stripped and thrown into jail. So it was a bit of an improvement. But it was far from a hero's welcome as they came into Thessalonica. Uh, And in many ways, they were engaged in a conflict of the most serious sort. We don't have to guess about that either. We read about it often in Acts chapter 17. It records the opposition they experienced. So here's Paul's point in verse 2. Despite their circumstances that would have justified them coming to Thessalonica, licking their wounds, and then just simply moving on to Berea or to Athens, instead the first thing they do when they arrive in Thessalonica is continue to proclaim the gospel of their boldness in God, because of their boldness in God. And friends, you don't do that for a lie. You don't do that for a lie. If your motive is wealth and fame, then that's not your strategy. This is Paul's point. The gospel he proclaimed was legit. The circumstances provided evidence for the legitimacy for the messenger and his message. There's no ulterior motive here for fame and glory. Paul continues providing evidence now with his second line of evidence that his gospel message matched his character with the source of his exhortation. He now is going to give them the source of his exhortation. And we see this in verses 3 and 4 of our text. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, read verses 3 and 4 with me. For our exhortation did not come from error 
or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit, but as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. So their message did not spring from error. The doctrines they taught were true. Paul's gospel is God's gospel, as we've seen over and over again. Paul can say this because his exhortation did not spring out of his own imagination. He's not making things up. It sprung from an encounter with the risen Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. It wasn't something he just conjured up. He had a real life experience in time and space, an encounter with someone who was supposed to be dead but had risen. So his gospel did not spring from error because it did not spring from Paul or any other man for that matter. It's not the word of men, but the word of God. But nor did it spring from anything unclean. Paul wanted to dispel any doubt about his motives. Not only did it spring from error nor uncleanness, but it also didn't spring from any attempt to deceive. Paul's motives were pure and his methods were honest. Really, Paul's own autobiographical account of his ministry says it much better than I can. If you flip to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, verse, verses 1 and 2, this is what you would find Paul saying about his own ministry. He says, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. So likewise, Paul reminds the church at Thessalonica that they did not use uh, disgraceful or un, uh, underhanded ways. This was not an attempt to deceive. There was no cunning used. They did not tamper with God's word to make it more palatable. Instead, in Thessalonica, just as in Corinth, as in Philippi, and every other place Paul went, he proclaimed the gospel through the open statement of the truth. And I've got to stop and ask us here, what has changed? Friends, who has given us the right to tamper with God's word? Who has given us the prerogative to use cunning devices of men to clothe our exhortation in emotional manipulation? Our methods should match the message. The truth does not need emotional manipulation. The truth needs an open proclamation with a boldness that is grounded in God and not in man's cunning. Who gave us, church, permission to replace the open statement of truth with deceptive practices? Let me remind us, the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. So the exhortation of Paul and his companions, it did not spring from error or uncleanness nor deceit, but instead their appeal came from messengers who were approved by God, who were commissioned to please God, not man. In verse 4, Paul presents his credentials more or less. He says he was approved by God. It's a perfect form of the verb, meaning that it took place in the past, but it has an impact in the present. He was approved. He has been tested, tried, and approved by God. 
their ministry had the stamp of God's approval on it, reminding probably the Thessalonians what he reminded the Galatians in chapter 1 of the book of Galatians, where Paul says, The gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither, neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is God's gospel, and it was entrusted to Paul by God. Here's the picture, really. It's a king who's got an announcement to make, an edict that he once proclaimed among all the land to the ends of the earth. And so he chooses certain men who have been present, whom he trusts, and he gives them a message so to give throughout the whole world to proclaim his edict. That's the picture. So he spoke as one who had been called and set apart for gospel ministry, who had been entrusted with a message from the king. Paul was not a freelancer. He was not free to tamper with the message. In fact, as he would later write to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.4, no one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. That was Paul's aim. Paul goes on to provide further evidence that his, uh, his motives, his methods, and his manner of life matched his message, not only in the exhortation, but in the delivery of his message. Paul was giving this line of evidence in the delivery of his message. He once again uses another contrast, not this, but that. It's not flattery, nor a cloak of covetousness, nor seeking their own glory, but we, will, we were gentle, caring, and loving among you. Not flattery. Look what he says here in verse 5. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness. He calls the Thessalonians and God himself to witness that they never used flattery. They never used their words for a cloak of covetousness. Paul denies using flattering words in order to gain influence over someone, in order to manipulate them. Nor did he use his words for a cloak of covetousness. In fact, far from harboring the motive of covetousness, Paul actually labored night and day not to be a burden in Thessalonica. Look what he says in verse 6. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. As Paul has already stated, far from attempting to achieve glory for himself, uh, the gospel he proclaimed brought upon him suffering and shame, and yet he continued to declare the gospel of God. So not flattery, not a cloak of covetousness or self-seeking glory, but instead they were gentle like a nursing mother ready to share our lives with you. They were as a mother would be with her own child. They open their lives to them because they sincerely love them. And that really is the only motive that Paul presents us with. Verse 8 starts with, he says, we so are affectionately longing for you. And, and that affectionately longing, that word in the Greek, it's not a word that's used very often. It's rarely used, in fact. I believe this is the only time in the New Testament that it's used, and it's rarely used outside the New Testament. And what's interesting is where you find this word most often used is in funeral settings where a parent is describing the longing desire they have for their deceased child. I mean, friends, that is a sincere and deep longing. That is what Paul and his 
companions experienced for the Thessalonians. They had become beloved. And so they were willing not only to share the gospel, but their very lives. And this is the final line of evidence that Paul presents the church. This is where Paul goes next in verses 9 through 12. In the openness of his life. The openness of his life. He calls them to witness that their manner of living was in keeping with the gospel they proclaimed. He reminds them of their labor, their conduct, and instruction. Paul labored night and day. He would get up before the sun rose and labor all day in order not to be a burden to anyone. All the while teaching and proclaiming the gospel. Paul was a tent maker, remember that. He didn't work in an air-conditioned office his labor was labor and as he labored he would minister to the people who came to him his conduct was likewise a devout just and blameless he he describes it he says that in verse number 10 your witnesses in God also how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you you whom believe they were pious and walked in a manner worthy of the gospel They treated people with love and respect and kindness. Their conduct conformed to the gospel they proclaimed. And then Paul goes on to talk about his instruction, his charge. It also served as evidence as part of his life that was opened up to them. His instruction was that like a father. Look at verses 11 and 12. As you know how we exhorted and comfort and charged every one of you as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. His instruction with the gospel ministry all served to support or confirm his gospel ministry. So taken together with all of this, Paul offers a strong apologetic for his gospel by pointing to his gospel ministry in verses 2 through 12. The purity of Paul's motives, the integrity or honesty of his methods, and the righteousness of Paul's manner of life are apparent through the circumstances in Paul's ministry, through Paul's exhortation, for the delivery of his message and the openness of his life. For this reason, the Thessalonians knew they could trust Paul's message. That's why they knew they could trust the message. Now listen, I know that's a lot, and that's a lot very quickly, right? We're, we, we took five weeks to cover four and a half verses, and we just covered 12 verses in a very short period of time. This is a large passage to go through, especially for your pastor, but, but this is actually a literary unit. And, and the big idea that we see of this unit, again, is that Paul's motives, methods, and manner evidence the trustworthiness of Paul's Message. I want you to really grasp that. Uh, That Paul's motives, methods, and manner evidenced the trustworthiness of Paul's message. That's really the point. And so one task remains, and, and you've listened to sermons before. You know the question we ask now that we've explained the text is, how do we apply the text? And I really stopped and, and thought about this this week and wanting to teach you uh, some principles of interpretation because I want to challenge us in how we might normally read this passage, interpret it, and apply it. I could be wrong, but, but I feel like we often go through a text like this and we read ourselves into the we, our, and I pronouns. We feel like that's our place in the story. So we kind of look really through the eyes of Paul and think about what it's like to be Paul ministering. 
while the Thessalonians actually kind of fade in the background of how they might have read this text. And so we read verse 1 and we think about whether our gospel ministry, whether it takes form at home or at work or vocational, we think about whether or not it really comes about without being vain or having vain motives. Whether it really comes with pure motives. We look at verse 2 and we think about how we suffer or maybe we don't suffer enough for the gospel. Or maybe how we have or haven't been bold for the gospel. How we do or don't continue to declare the gospel in the midst of conflict. We read verse 4 and we remind ourselves that we've been entrusted with the gospel so we need to speak to please God and not men. We read verse 5 and think we shouldn't flatter, etc., 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 right? But I, but I have a question. Is that what Paul intends and is that how the original audience would have read this and applied this? That the believers in Thessalonica, they received this letter and they think they're actually Paul? Does it make sense? So, so what is Paul communicating to them? To them then? Is Paul saying that we've been approved by God as in me? Paul is saying we've been approved by God and entrusted with the gospel, you and me, Thessalonians. No, he's, he's actually not saying that. When Paul writes that in our passage, he, he's actually meaning he and his companions. That's who he's referring to. They were approved and entrusted by God with the gospel. So wait, Pastor Cody, are you saying that we haven't been approved and we haven't been entrusted with the gospel in this way? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. Not in the same way as Paul and his companions. In fact, I want you to turn and look at, with me at John 14, 26. I turn here because it's another place where we do a very similar thing and the result is actually far more dangerous. Jesus in this context in John 14, hopefully you remember, is in his upper room and he's speaking to who? His disciples. He's speaking to the apostles who would go forth and proclaim his message. And he says to them in John 14, 26, these words, but the helper... The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. So let me ask you, do we read this verse as if Jesus is speaking directly to us? Maybe, but he's not. He's speaking to his disciples. Friends, it's so important that we know our place in the story. If we want to rightly understand this passage, we need to understand the context. Jesus is speaking to the disciples. Who's the Holy Spirit going to bring remembrance to? The disciples and apostles. What is he going to bring to their memory? Things that Jesus has said directly to them. And then they are going to proclaim it and they are going to write it down under the inspiration of the Spirit so that we have it in their words, in his words. And for instance, let's skip down now to Hebrews chapter 2. It tells us these men actually served a unique, unrepeatable role and function in the church. Hebrews 2 verse 3 says this, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and then get this, and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. Heard what? The writer of Hebrews is saying, we heard it directly from those who heard it from Jesus. We know the testimony. The Lord proclaimed it first, and we heard it from them. 
They saw it. They touched Jesus. They heard Jesus. They saw Jesus. Their testimony is trustworthy. And not only that, but God actually attested to it through his miracles and gifts of the Spirit. It has been confirmed. So where's our place in the story? Are we those who heard it directly from the Lord? We're not. We're a lot closer to the us in that passage. Where in Hebrews 2, he says it was confirmed to us by those who heard him. That's what this is. Their declaration of what they heard from Christ himself. And now we go back to our passage. Paul was approved to be entrusted with the gospel in a way that we are not. Paul and his companions were foundational stones, as Paul writes in Ephesians 2.20. The foundation has been laid. There are no more stones going to the foundation. We are those that are being built on top of the foundation that was laid once and for all through the proclamation of the Lord Jesus Christ and those he entrusted the gospel to. So, so really, why does all this matter? Why are we taking time to, to talk about this? I mean, it would be enough to say that a lot of times we misinterpret our Bibles because we don't understand our place in the story. And that should be enough. We often fail to distinguish between the unique role of the apostles and our role as stones being built on their gospel. And it's my contention that this is the purpose that our passage this morning serves. Paul is calling the Thessalonians to bear witness along with God to the integrity of his gospel ministry for the sake of the Thessalonians and ours. Listen to me. I am not an apostle. And so that means something, right? It means that if I turn out to be a huckster or a scam artist and I, I lie, Paul's gospel is still true. <laughs> but if Paul, Peter, James, or John, or any of the others turned out to be hucksters, liars, or con artists, then we have no reason to put our faith in that message. And so Paul provides us with evidence that the character of the messenger was in keeping with the message he has entrusted with. That's what this passage is doing. Did you notice here that Paul's uh, gospel ministry, the character of his gospel ministry, it's actually confirmed by two witnesses throughout this passage. Did, did you see this? You yourselves know, you know in verse 1 and verse 2, verse 5, as you know, verse 9, for you remember, verse 10, you are witnesses, verse 11, as you know, over and over again. He's saying, Thessalonians, you've seen this, but who else does Paul call as a witness? God himself. Remember that according to the Old Testament, we need two or more witnesses to confirm a charge. Paul is calling upon the Thessalonians and God to serve as witnesses that his gospel ministry might be confirmed. And so Paul's intent here is to strengthen the faith of the Thessalonians and our faith by providing concrete evidence that the gospel word he proclaimed is true. That's really the point of this entire passage. His pure motives, honest methods, and righteous manner provide the evidence that strengthens us in our faith. Now hear me, uh, most of the application points we made before about searching our own hearts and motives, considering our methods, thinking carefully about our manner of life, they all apply. 
All of that applies because we can go elsewhere in Scripture to confirm that. It's okay to even consider Paul's methods, motives, and manner and how we should imitate that, especially for me as one who holds the office of elder. I should do that. But listen, this is not Paul's primary intent here. And so now we come to the question, how do we apply this? Well, I'm not going to take very long here, but I am going to offer a couple ways we can apply this. So bear with me. If Paul's primary point here is that his motives, his methods, and his manner of life actually gives us evidence that the gospel message is sure, then one of the things we can walk away with is knowing and recognizing that our faith is not blind. We can recognize that our faith is not blind. It was never meant to be blind. It's not a blind leap, as some say. But God actually provides lots of evidence for us to believe. Did John not write his gospel for that very reason? We spent two and a half years going over John's gospel. And John continually providing the signs of Christ so that those who may read it might believe. Faith is not blind. Uh, The second application I'd like to give to you is I would also say that history matters. History matters matters. You realize that the Christian faith is the only faith that is actually grounded in historical events. Our faith says, here it is, disprove it. What we're claiming is not high or far off. We're saying, listen, there was a time when the Son of God was actually born of a woman and he lived. We're claiming that he lived a perfect life and died a very specific death, that he was buried and actually rose again. You come up with the body of Jesus, you disprove any of that, as Paul says, eat and drink and be merry, because we have nothing to believe in. Our faith is a historic faith, and it's grounded in time and space. So history matters. Then finally, one more we've seen already. Knowing your place in the story is important. Knowing your place in the story is important. If we are to rightly understand God's word, if it is to have power in our life, we must rightly understand our place. And so our goal when reading and interpreting scripture is to understand what the original author meant and what the original audience was supposed to hear. I want you to hear that. When we're interpreting scripture, our goal is to hear what the original author meant and what the original audience was supposed to hear. That's our goal in interpreting And in this case, the original author intended to strengthen the faith of his original audience by reminding them of his pure motives, honest methods, and righteous manner. God and Thessalonians bear witness that the character of Paul's ministry evidenced the truthfulness of Paul's gospel. This gospel has now come to us so that we can know that God God calls us into his kingdom and glory. So be strengthened, church. Listen, the Thessalonians received this letter and we still have it. That's the only reason we still have it, right? Do you know what they did when they received it? They kept it. They celebrated it. They made copies of it. You know what that means? It means that every time Paul said, you know, you yourselves know, you know, your witnesses, they said, yep. Do you think they would have kept it if they thought Paul was a liar? (laughs) Do you think they would have kept it if they said, man, that Paul guy didn't work a day of his life. He's actually living off Jason over there. No, they got it. And they were like, amen. Yes. The gospel came in power. 
and the Holy Spirit and conviction. I saw the way Paul lived. I know his motives were pure. His message must be true. And so they have stood as witnesses for almost 2,000 years, and we are now strengthened by their witness. And so, friends, Paul is no music man. Paul was motivated by love. His method was the open statement of the truth, and his manner of life was devout, righteous, and blameless. And so we can trust the gospel of Jesus Christ that he proclaimed. We can trust it. The gospel we believe is true. And the world may scoff, your flesh may waver, and Satan may attempt to dissuade you. But the character of Paul's life bears irrefutable evidence of the truthfulness of his gospel. And for that we say, amen. Thank you, Jesus. This word is true. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Father, Lord, we thank you for this word. Father, we thank you for the gospel that was proclaimed by men whom you approve and entrusted with that gospel. We thank you that this gospel has been preserved for us, that we might avail ourselves of it and feast on it week in and week out, reminding ourselves of the things the apostles proclaimed, that they are true things. We can trust them. We have good reason to set our hope on Christ, to endure, to stand steadfast, regardless of what the world says, regardless of the wavering of our flesh, regardless of the lies of Satan. Your word is true. Father, help us by your grace to grow in the faith of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. Church family, if you're listening to this this morning and and You've never been convinced before that this gospel of God is true, that it's grounded in history, that it's not a blind faith. It's a faith with uh, so much evidence, overwhelming evidence. Uh, and, and you know that you don't have a place in the story because you don't have true and lasting faith. Well, friends, I want to encourage you that today would be the day of salvation for you. That you put your faith and trust in the finished work of Christ as we've already proclaimed if that's you, please do us a favor and reach out to us. You can call the office. You can come visit us. You can send us even a text message. And we love the opportunity to share Christ with you um, anytime. And church family, once again, really, this book was written to a church. And so there's a lot of primary, primary application for the church. And so I want you to think about this this week as what we have is sure and, and, and full of evidence of its truth so that we don't need to waver or add man's taste into it or uh, um, distort the delivery of this message. We need to hold fast to what we know to be true because it speaks for itself. And so in the midst of these, um, these ever-shifting times and territories, may we stand fast on uh, the word of God, knowing that it's true and it's lasting. I love you, church. I'm praying for you every day. I long to see every one of your faces again. God bless you. Have a wonderful day.